Well, good morning, church. It's great to see and hear you greeting one another and welcoming one another. Uh, and so great to have you who are joining us online as well. Uh, we come today to the final installment of the series to the church. Uh, we've been looking at seven letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John, letters addressed to first century churches in a place that was then called Asia Minor, postal route in what is in modern day Turkey. And as we've been uh, kind of overhearing what Jesus said to these churches, we've been listening for what Jesus says to us, to our church, uh, because we don't want to miss whether it's words of encouragement or words of challenge. We want to hear everything that he has to say to us. And so this morning, we come to the final letter. Now, I have this guess, uh, you might say, that if I had given you a pop quiz, let's say six weeks ago, and said, tell me everything you know about the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. And that would have been mean, first of all. But, uh, but my guess is uh, probably at the top of your list would be some of the things that Jesus says in this last letter, the letter to Laodicea. It's a letter that is filled with striking and terrifying words and images. And it's also a letter that is filled with some of the most beautiful and reassuring words that we could ever hear from Jesus. And so I invite you to have your Bible open to Revelation chapter 3, and this morning <clears throat> we're going to uh, listen to the letter at Laodicea, Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. So I wonder if any of you have, say, TV shows or maybe books or newspaper columns that you find cringy to read or to watch. You, you want to look away, but somehow you just can't. Well, true confession, I do. Don't judge me, VRBC, but for me, one of those long-time cringy things that I just haven't been able to look away from is a, is a feature in a newspaper called the Washington Post, and it's called Date Lab. Date Lab. My friends on staff say it's the nerd version of The Bachelor, uh, which I've never seen, but I've heard is popular. Is that right, uh, The Bachelor? 
Um, well, here's how it works. People who are looking for a date apply to Date Lab to be set up with someone by a team from that newspaper. And they do it in exchange for the newspaper writing a column about how the date went and kind of dishing on all the details. Well, uh, here's how it works. Here's a live example. Back uh, last fall, uh, 24-year-old Paige, a barista, went on a date with 26-year-old Ben, who works in trade policy for a governmental agency in Washington, D.C. Here's a picture of Ben and, and Paige. Well, Ben is looking for someone who is open-minded and uh, who, uh, who's kind of outdoorsy. And Paige is looking for someone who's a good listener and shares her passion for art and culture. Well, over dinner, they talk about their backgrounds, and, and it turns out the, the dinner lasts three hours, uh, and then they actually take a walk after dinner along the, the Georgetown waterfront, and as far as Ben is concerned, things are going great. Uh, he loves every new detail he learns about Paige, including the fact that they both love Waffle House, uh, which, man, I mean, it's hard to think of a more solid foundation for a relationship. <laughs> But Paige, on the other hand, feels like things are a little boring. She'll throw out a line, but Ben won't catch it. She said later, I felt like there was no point in the night where Ben felt comfortable with me, and it was kind of hard. So let's just say the two have very different perspectives on how the date went. Well, now for me, the cringiest part of Date Lab happens when the date is over and the two people are asked to rate the date on a scale of one to five. Well, on this particular outing, Ben gives it a five, highest score. And Paige gives it a three. And guess what? There was no second date. Ouch, so cringy. Why do I read this stuff? I don't know. I just can't tell you why. Now, it's a long, long way from date lab to Revelation chapter three, isn't it? A long way, and yet, and yet, I wonder if there are some key points of connection. Because you see, in any relationship, there are always two perspectives going on. And one perspective might think everything is going fantastic. And the other perspective might find some serious shortcomings. Isn't it interesting that the Bible frequently speaks of the church and Jesus with the language of relationship? with the language of intimacy, in fact, with the language of marriage. The church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus is called the bridegroom. But, but in the case of our relationship with Jesus, there's really only one perspective on the health of the relationship that really matters, and that is the perspective of Jesus, because Jesus sees us and our relationship with perfect clarity. And yet, like Ben on Date Lab, we can be deluded. We can think things are going really well when things are not going well between us and Jesus. We can give it a five and Jesus can give it a three or in the case of Laodicea, a one. But as we'll see, that's not the end of the relationship. And so what I want us to discover today is Jesus' honest perspective. I want us to discover his honest perspective on this church. I want us to reflect on Jesus' honest perspective on us and our relationship with him. I think it'll make sense as we walk through it. And we're gonna begin with the bad news. 
In fact, we're going to begin with the last thing we would ever want to hear from Jesus. And the last thing that we would want to hear is radical honesty about our God-impoverished lives. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Radical honesty about how poor our souls are when it comes to our experience of God. The last thing we would ever want to hear Jesus say is how totally lacking we are in the presence of God, in the goodness of God, in the truth of God. And yet this is the message that Jesus delivers to Laodicea. Now, uh, maybe uh, you're familiar with these letters. They, they, they follow a pretty similar structure. And the first part is always Jesus identifying himself. And, and that's an important part to pay attention to uh, as Jesus reveals new aspects about himself. And so verse 14 says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Here we are invited once again as with all these letters, to marvel at Jesus. In a world of deception, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. We can count on him. He's the ruler. He's the king of creation. And then this word amen or amen, as we say in Texas, uh, it doesn't mean the end, uh, like my prayer is over. It means may it be so. And Jesus is the perfect amen. He makes God's promises come true in our lives. The faithful and true witness Jesus can be counted on. He can even be counted on when he gives a devastating summary of who we are in our relationship with him. And that's exactly what happens as we look at verse 15. Jesus says to the church, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now you might think, wouldn't he wish we'd be hot? Why would he wish we'd be cold? I think it'll make sense as we walk through this. Uh, but, but, but isn't it interesting that Jesus says, almost in the language of a barista, he says, you're neither, if I might use a paraphrase here, you're neither a piping hot cup of coffee or a snappy ice cold latte. No church at Laodicea, you are room temperature. You're like that leftover coffee in a styrofoam cup that was left on the counter in the grow group classroom last Sunday. You are stagnant. It gets even worse in verse 16. Jesus says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Yes, Jesus actually said that. What is it about this church at Laodicea that makes Jesus want to hurl? That's the question we want to answer, and it's going to take a little bit of investigation. Because you see, 30 years earlier, from, from, from all we understand, the church at Laodicea was doing well. It had experienced better days. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus, he authorized missions to nearby cities like Colossae, where we get uh, the letter of Colossians, and also the city of Laodicea. In fact, at the end of uh, Paul's letter in, in uh, Colossians 4, during that section where he's always kind of say hi to your mama and them at the end, you know. He says, send my greetings to Laodicea. Let this letter of Colossians be read at Laodicea. That's in the A.D. 60s, but now it's the A.D. 90s. And I don't know if you've experienced this before, but churches are often not good at all when it comes to coasting. And if we're not intentional with our relationship with God, 
the presence of the Holy Spirit can seep out of a faithless church like that, kind of like helium in a, a, a party balloon. Have you ever seen a party balloon just kind of laying on the carpet? That's what the church can become like. So what happened? How did that church in Laodicea lose its fire? How did that church in Laodicea grow lukewarm? Well, I think Jesus' answers has some, some layers to it. In fact, I really think Jesus is making a brilliant sermon illustration in this letter. He's taking a physical feature of the infrastructure of the city of Laodicea that everybody there would have been very familiar with, and he's using it to, to make a deep theological point. Let me see if I can explain. The actual city of Laodicea lacked its own water supply. Now, there was cold water up in the mountains. There was hot springs in the neighboring city of Hierapolis. But the best that Laodicea could do was to get water that was piped in through old aqueducts, through, it kind of came, the water came dripping through stone barrel pipes. And local historians at the time said that the water in Laodicea was terrible. It was muddy. It was full of sediment. Now, if that water were hot, you might want to take a bath in it. If it were cold, it would be great to drink. But, but the water in Laodicea was neither. It was, it, was, it, was, it was smelly, it was unpleasant, it, was, it, it made you gag. And Jesus says, your city's water supply is a good metaphor for your church's spiritual condition. It's tepid, it's stagnant, it makes me wanna hold my nose, Jesus would say. Now, I want you to imagine a, a contemporary scenario. Let's say that a faithful Christian from another country moves to the US and they make their way to VRBC. It's been a long trip, they, they still have jet lag, they're, they're, they're struggling with culture shock, they miss their church family back home, and, uh, but yet one day on a walk they see uh, the cross at the top of the steeple at our church and they say to themselves, praise God at church! Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's where I'm going this Sunday. But let's just say, as soon as they step into the lobby, something feels off. It just feels like there's no life. No one greets them with the love of Jesus. No one seems eager to feed on the word of God. The worship is half-hearted, lifeless. The preaching is insipid, uninspired. The prayer rail is empty. You're three times more likely to hear grumbling after the service than gratitude. Can you imagine how deflating that would be? How disappointing? How like lukewarm coffee? How like brackish water? Church, may it never be so with us. In fact, I, I am so pleased through the years to hear just the opposite from so many of you who've joined us. But I think the message, the, the cautionary tale from Laodicea is clear, and that is we can never coast as a church. We can never be mired in past failures or rest on past successes. We, we, we can never be content with secondhand faith. We have to stay fresh. And so to go back to my original question, what happened in Laodicea to turn them lukewarm? Where did the Holy Spirit go? Well, I think there's a terrifying clue in verse 17. 
And it has to do with the, the, the church's self-perspective and the perspective of Jesus. Here's their self-perspective. You say, church at Laodicea, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. I guess, you know, the church at Laodicea said, money is my Lord and Savior and I'm doing great. But Jesus says, but you do not realize that in actuality, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What a devastating thing to hear. Talk about self-deception. Talk about a false perspective. Here's the problem. The reason why the church in Laodicea is so stagnant, stagnant is because they've, they've set their hearts on worldly assets. That church was rich in worldly wealth. In fact, there was said to be so much gold in the city of Laodicea that when an earthquake uh, destroyed much of their city and Rome wanted to send money to help them rebuild, they said, ah, oh, we're good. We're good. We've got plenty of money. We've got plenty of gold. We're fine. Laodicea was known for making a dark woolen clothing. Think raven black. Think tuxedo black. And all the dapper dandies in Asia Minor loved to wear Laodicean clothing. Laodicea even had a med school, and, and they would ship this eye ointment, this salve, far and wide. Laodicea, except for the water, had the best the world has to offer, and yet they didn't realize how spiritually bankrupt they were. They could export eye medicine and not realize they're spiritually blind. They could manufacture the sharpest looking clothes and not realize that their souls are naked. And it can happen, church. Our perspective on our relationship with Jesus can be so flawed. And we need to hear radical honesty from Jesus. We need to hear a word that prompts repentance. We, we need to hear what Jesus says in verse 18 where he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, spiritual treasure, so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He's, Jesus says, you need to discover what true wealth looks like. It's the wealth of God's presence and promises. It's the garments of Christ's holy righteousness. It's the medicine that opens the blind eyes of our hearts. It must have been so hard for that church to hear that everything they're putting their value in is worthless from an eternal vantage point. Materially rich, yet spiritually impoverished. And maybe if you heard all that from Jesus in the first part of the letter, and if you stopped reading right there and just said, I can't go on, <laughs> I can't read anymore, you would think your relationship with Jesus was over. You would think there would be no second date between the church at Laodicea and Jesus. But what's so amazing about this letter is after we hear the hardest thing, the worst thing we ever could want to hear from Jesus, we hear the absolute best thing we could ever want to hear. We hear from Jesus radical hope about a prayerful future. I mean, you get done with verse 17 and you think, well, I guess the relationship is over. If Jesus will say these devastatingly hard things to us, he must never want to see us again. Guess what? Wrong. <laughs> in fact, Jesus tells us something very important about repentance in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
you're experiencing my rebuke and discipline? It's not because I hate you, it's because I love you. It's because I want you to be earnest. It's because I want you to repent. I love this verse. Jesus says, yeah, I said you made me want to vomit. You thought I wanted to break up with you? No, no, you don't know me, child. I'm honest with my beloved. I'm honest because I want what's best for you. And what's best for you is to turn around. Isn't it fascinating? I mean, when you're physically, financially bankrupt, you're going to be in a hole for a long, long time. But when you're spiritually bankrupt and you cry out to Jesus, you're on the verge of treasure. I love the insight from a Welsh pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. When he was a young pastor, he experienced in his church in Wales um, a time of tremendous revival. And, uh, and, he, and he never got over it, and he prayed for it to happen again, and nothing like that ever happened. Uh, but he made revival a lifelong passion and source of study and writing and and, and, and he, was, he was an expert on revival, and so I trust him when he says, if you read the histories and account of every revival that's ever taken place, he says, invariably, you'll find this one person or this one little group of people, the, 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 the one person or the group that's been used of God to bring about revival, and it says this person or group, they've always known a state of utter desperation and, and, and despair before revival comes. He says, every one of them. He says, read the journals of people like John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. These people always come to this place of, of utter, absolute powerlessness, of final paralysis. He calls it their Red Sea moment. Remember when the children of Israel, they come and they're kind of blocked by the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army are chasing and there's nowhere for them to go. He says in that Red Sea moment, right, where, 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 where you've lost all hope in yourself, he says, this is the moment at which God acts. It's one of the most beautiful promises in Scripture. I mean, Jesus has, has been pounding Laodicea with devastating honesty about where things stand, and it's not good. But then he says to the church in verse 20, here I am. I'm still here. Not only am I still here, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And eat with that person. And they with me. We think Jesus is ready to break up with us and never see us again. And he's at the door. He's standing. He's knocking. He's waiting to see if we'll open the door. You know, often when this passage is applied, it's applied to, to lost people, to people who haven't met Jesus as Savior and Lord. But really in this context, it is applied to a church. Jesus is knocking on the church's door. Have you ever thought about that? You know, if I were to ask you what you thought was the most famous painting in the world, you might speak of da Vinci's Mona Lisa or Van Gogh's Starry Nights, perhaps. But, but there was a time in the early 20th century when, from a popularity standpoint, another painting claimed that top spot. It was by an English painter named Holman Hunt. Holman Hunt was a Christian and he was gripped by Revelation 3.20. And when he was only uh, 21 years of age, he tried to paint what he saw going on in that verse. He was one of those great artists who obsessed over the details, and so he actually traveled from England to Jerusalem because he wanted to be able to describe uh, the moonlight 
and a Palestinian landscape. The painting became so popular, he painted a second version, and then when he was an old man, he painted an even larger version of it. And it was so popular that when the painting went on tour in Australia, historians estimate that 80% of the population went to see it. Four out of five Australians going to see this painting, the version of which today resides in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. So, so what is it? What is it about that painting? Well, let's see if we can kind of see for ourselves. I know it's nothing like standing in front of the real thing, but when you look at this painting, you see Jesus. It's at night. He's carrying a lantern, and he's come to a door that you would have, it's kind of hard to even recognize it as a door, and you would have to imagine it hasn't swung open in a long time. Look at all the vegetation that's grown up around that door. And then there's something really unusual. It's a door, but there's no handle on the outside. Apparently, it only opens from the inside. No one, uh, you know, can kind of force it open or, or shove their way in. The only way the door gets open is if the person on the inside opens it. People began to call this, uh, this work of art a sermon in a picture frame. And perhaps you can see why. Is that why in the early 20th century millions of people came to see it? Did they potentially see themselves somehow reflected in the painting? Did they sense their own Laodicean lukewarm heart just on the other side of the doorframe? And then did they somehow see, hear gentle Jesus, the light of the world with the glowing lantern? Did they somehow hear him knocking? Larry, I know you're in there. (laughs) Yes, I know I shared harsh truth with you But it's not because I hate you, Larry. Quite the opposite. I love you. Won't you open the door, Larry? Won't you open the door? I'll come in. We'll sit down. We'll eat together. We'll pray together. We'll commune together. We'll fellowship together. Is that why millions of people came to see this painting? What about your heart right now? What do you hear in your heart? Do you hear Jesus saying, here I am. Here I am, just on the other side of the door. I love what Tim Keller says about the gospel because this is truly the gospel. The gospel says you're more sinful than you could ever know and you're more loved than you could ever imagine. In Christ, both at the same time. As sinful as we are, we're loved. As sinful as we are, Jesus stands, waits, knocks. And you know, every time Jesus offers an invitation to the churches, the seven churches in Revelation, he says the same thing. And I think he says it to us right now. Whoever has ears, whoever has spiritual insight and hearing, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of my favorite writers on prayer, a Norwegian named Ole Hollisby, once said that Revelation 3.20 is a perfect description of what prayer is about. 
He says all prayer is is simply opening the door. Opening the door of our hearts and giving Jesus access to everything. Letting Jesus come in, bring his power to deal with everything on the inside. And sometimes we stare through the keyhole and we whisper, I can't let you in, Jesus. It's filthy in here. And he says, I know. (laughs) I know, but I still want to come in. I can't let you in, Jesus. He says, let me in. Let me bring healing presence in. Let me bring peace in. Let me bring grace in. BRBC, what say you? What is the Spirit saying to us? I sure hope his word for us is nowhere near as harsh as it was for Laodicea. But I know, I know that all of us need to listen to the Spirit, to listen for Christ's knock, to listen for hope, to listen for life, and to open the door and let him in. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we know that we are prone to self-deception. We are prone to self-deception about our relationship with you and about what passes for security in our lives. We know we can feel secure at one moment and then life can fall apart the next. We know the things that we bank on have no eternal currency to them. We confess to you, Lord, how desperately we need you. And Lord, we are amazed that you still stand at the door. We are amazed that you still knock. We are amazed that we, with all our sinfulness, you still want to come in. And so now, Lord, we ask for the faith to simply open the door and to let you come in fully into our hearts, into our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.